LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is Elon Musk a genius, a charlatan, or a little bit of both? I want to come clean. I'm a fan of Elon Musk. Yes, he's reckless, sometimes tone deaf, sometimes irresponsible, but I've always seen his defiance as part of an earnest effort to change the world in his own sometimes clumsy way, largely for the better. I'm reminded of the George Bernard Shaw quote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Musk is, without a doubt, an unreasonable man. And that unreasonableness has seemed to me to be in the service of progress, even if some of that progress, specifically the obsession with getting to Mars, seemed lacking in practicality. But then I heard an extraordinary podcast series called The Evening Rocket, written and hosted by Jill Lepore. I listened to it over a series of mornings while taking my kids to school, and I was spellbound. Jill, a historian at Harvard, contributing writer at The New Yorker, and author of more than a dozen books, is interested less in Musk the man than the science fiction stories that shaped him, that seeded his fantasies, imbuing him with rather ludicrous obsessions and outlandish visions of the future. Here's the way Jill describes the era of capitalism that Musk has come to personify. Scholars kept groping for adjectives to describe these new brands of capitalism, surveillance capitalism, platform capitalism, identity capitalism. What about just X capitalism? X for extreme, extravagant, existential. A capitalism in which companies worry, very publicly and quite feverishly, about planetary disaster, about the all too real catastrophe of climate change, but also about all sorts of so-called existential risks to the future of the human race so that they can save us all. A capitalism animated by catastrophe, a capitalism driven by science fiction, and driven, too, by the disavowal of its own origins. Jill's analysis is fascinating, incisive, and persuasive. She's helped me evolve my thinking on the subject. My kids, fans of her show, were a step ahead of me, as usual. I think Elon Musk is fine, and it's pretty impressive what he's done so far. Um, some of his future thoughts are a bit crazy for me. And, and what strikes you as crazy? Well, I mean, just like going to Mars and especially like building his own tunnel through LA doesn't make practical sense. Practical or not, the stakes here are consequential. 60 years ago, the nation debated the merits of going to the moon. Today, the two richest men in the world, shaped by childhood science fiction fantasies, have amassed personal fortunes of more than $400 billion, and they plan to use much of their wealth not to build schools or libraries or alleviate poverty, but to take us all into space. Where did this dream come from, and does it make any sense? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Jill Lepore, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, now, Jill, do you have a hard out in an hour, or how 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 hard is that out? <laughs> this is a, this is a shocking thing to report, but we're having a dinner party tonight. Oh. So <laughs> I just think it haven't done it in a long time. I know it's so 2019. Um, so I got to cook dinner. Okay, well we'll we'll keep that in mind. We certainly want your your friends to be well fed. So, Jill, you are the author of 14 books. You host the acclaimed podcast, The Last Archive. Last year alone, you published 10 articles in The New Yorker, and that's all on top of your day job as a professor of American history at Harvard. Just reading your accomplishments wears me out. I can only imagine what it was like to actually accomplish them. You clearly have a work ethic that's, uh, dare I say, muskian. <laughs> no, I'm super tired, though. I don't He conveys a lot of energy. Like, I'm dragging myself around by my own heels, so... <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're you're metaphorically sleeping on the factory floor. <laughs> well, you've made this wonderful podcast series, The Evening Rocket. I actually played it out loud to my kids on the way to school over the course of the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and, and they loved it as well. You have listeners of all sizes. It's not so much about Elon Musk as it is about Muskism or, or what you call extreme capitalism. I think it'd be nice to open with your intro to the show. It's all about Elon Musk and his strange new kind of capitalism. Call it Muskism. Extravagant, extreme capitalism. Extraterrestrial capitalism. Where stock prices are driven by earnings, but also by fantasies. I'm fascinated by Silicon Valley's futurism and by how, in Musk's life, those visions of the future all come from the same place, the science fiction he grew up on. To understand where Musk wants to take the rest of us, with his electric cars, his rockets to Mars, his meme stocks, and tunnels deep beneath the Earth, I decided to look at those science fiction stories and understand what he's missed about them. So blast off with me on the evening rocket, on a journey into the history of our future. The history of our future. So interesting. I've heard you say, Jill, that you're fantastically uninterested in biographies of the rich and famous. You were not even particularly interested in Musk before this project came along. Having said that, Musk is is an unusually interesting person, and it feels to me like we all collectively have a kind of love-hate relationship with Elon Musk. <laughs> um, I think I heard that you wanted to be an astronaut as a child. Um, <laughs> do you have a, Do you also have a love-hate relationship with Elon? What, what was your feeling about him coming into this? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I have a love-hate relationship with him. I don't it's hard to really reckon with him as a true human being. I think the character he plays on the internet is such a caricature of himself that I don't think anyone who uh, watches that really has much of a sense of Musk as a person. I could be wrong. I mean, I don't mean to question other people's sense of sure, intimacy sure. with him. But I I mean, you can't really avoid <laughs> Avoid him if you're reading the news, or he's ubiquitous. But it's a little bit like, I was trying to think, what is the name of that Burt Reynolds movie? Is it Convoy, where guy's driving, and he's like constantly looking in his side view, and it's rear view mirror, and there's this giant Mack truck kind of bearing down on him all oh, the time? Oh, yes, yes, like, yes. That's sort of how I feel about Musk, or really sort of Muskism. Like, no matter which, you're on the highway, get off on an exit, you get back on the highway, there's always this giant 18-wheeler behind you that's just yeah. like riding you, and you're, you, it's really hard to 
keep an eye on where you're trying to go because you're sort of trying to avoid the inevitable crash, which I think I just as a sort of with Musk, there's it always seems to me it's on the precipice of disaster, muskism. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's mm-hmm. it so much participates in the culture of catastrophism and superheroism. Like that's just a part of the consequence of being such a kind of Marvel Universe character in real life. Yeah, you know, I, I think my perception of it may have been slightly humanized by my experience reading Ashley Vance's biography of Musk, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you must have read in your process. Yeah, and, yeah. And, um, you know, what, what struck me about that book was here's this guy who was fascinated by comic books of space travel as a child. But you get the sense reading it that he took refuge in this fantasy of flying to Mars, partly as an escape from his everyday reality, right? He had this fraught relationship with his father that he's called verbally abusive. I think he was bullied at one point so severely that he was hospitalized. And then you picture him coming back to his comic books and fantasizing about trips to Mars. But now we fast forward 40 years, he has a fortune of $270 billion in a space company, you know, SpaceX, Mm -hmm. and he's preparing to use his resources to actually take all of us to Mars, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, you have this guy who's hyper-rational in so many ways, but the obsession with taking us to Mars does not feel entirely rational. And as you point out in this wonderful project, it's really about the the power of science fiction storytelling as a cultural force, and also, I would say, maybe this very human childhood experience he had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that childhood experience is really compelling to so many of us who, you know, were awkward, bookish kids, right? So I think that it has a kind of universality to it, to a certain sort of person. And it has a kind of timelessness, right? Like, you could, you know, Musk grew up in the 1970s, but you could have been that kid growing up Reading, reading Asimov in the 1950s, being bullied mm-hmm. at school by, you know, Biff or whoever, sort of like a Back to the Future character. You could have been that kid growing up in the 1920s, reading amazing stories, you know, pulp mm-hmm. science fiction magazines. And I think that's a big part of the play, right? The biographical mm-hmm. play. Um, you know, I talk about that as there's a whole genre of that of that character, right? Just the boy, the boy wonder, right? The boy who has mm-hmm. got a really smart engineering brain picks up ideas from comic books and popular culture and tries to bring them to reality. I mean, the kid, you know, it's Encyclopedia Brown. It's the kid from the Great Brain series. It's a convention that goes, you know, young Tom Edison, right? We have that. There's a whole genre in in children's literature. It goes back decades and decades and decades and decades. And it's because it, it speaks to a real experience, right? I mean, I think it's a kind of, uh, it has a sort of rootedness in a particular vision of, boyhood in particular. I don't think that a lot of girls mm-hmm. necessarily feel like that that's the story that, that tells the story of the, their childhood. But, you know, I, I don't not to say that that isn't what Mo- Elon Musk experienced as a little boy growing up in Pretoria, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he also was a little boy growing up in Pretoria, South Africa during the, the years in which apartheid was being dismantled through a mass protest movement with international support. And that movement was critiquing a certain sort of vision of the world order that our boy wonder stories kind of participate in. So all of which is just to say, like, I I get that and I, I find it, you know, at once charming, like the kid. And, you know, also I'll say, like, I have young children in my life and I've had young mm-hmm, children mm-hmm. in my life who read comic books and invented things and, you know, imagine themselves as Buck Rogers or Marty McFly. And it's, you know, that is all great. But as a historian, mm-hmm. that is a really old story on which to build a vision of the future. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Well, 
as you say, Musk was born in Pretoria, South Africa in 1971. Growing up, he was fascinated by these comic books about space travel. He was an avid reader. And The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy became a kind of Bible to him. And this book has an interesting relationship to the apartheid era in South Africa. We have a clip here from the show. Let's play it. The Hitchhiker's Guide didn't start out as a book. Adams wrote it for BBC Radio 4. And starting in 1978, it was broadcast on the BBC World Service, including to Pretoria. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Far back in the mists of ancient time, in the great and glorious days of the former Galactic Empire, life was wild, rich, and on the whole, tax-free. Many men, of course, became extremely rich. But this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of because no one was really poor, at least no one worth speaking of. The Hitchhiker's Guide, that is, begins with an indictment of economic inequality. What was it like to listen to this in South Africa, under apartheid? Musk hardly ever talks about apartheid, at least not publicly. I'm going to talk about it for a while here, because it's a crucial piece of this history. But first, let me be really clear. White people who happened to grow up in South Africa under apartheid in the 1970s and 1980s are not responsible for apartheid. Peter Thiel, another Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and later a key business partner of Elon Musk's, also lived in South Africa for a while as a kid. They were children. Also, Musk left South Africa when he was 17 to avoid being conscripted into the army, the army that imposed and enforced the regime. I'm not placing blame here. Still, I do think there's a weird way in which the culture of apartheid found expression in the 1990s in Silicon Valley's vision of the future. Can you unpack this a little, Jill? How did the culture of apartheid find expression in Silicon Valley's vision of the future? Hmm. Well, I guess I'll just say, you know, I, I'm very compelled by the story that Musk tells about falling in love with Hitchhiker's Guide as a kid. Mm -hmm, you know, I mm -hmm. listened to those radio yeah. broadcasts. Like, mm -hmm. you were probably that same kid, like, watch sure. Doctor Who, every episode of Doctor Who, you know. That sort of being, uh, the sort of escapism of science fiction, the... And the humor of Hitchhiker's Guide, Douglas Adams' broadcasts are just incredibly funny. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a bit of an exercise of the imagination to, to think about listening to them in a culture that is so profoundly dedicated to the proposition that people are not created equal. Since June the 16th, when South African troops and police opened fire on a peaceful school children's demonstration, the white government has presided over the largest massacre of its black population since South Africa came into existence. I saw a child of eight, and this kid innocently raised his fist in a black power sign and said, power to this passing hippo. The hippo stopped it there on the spot, and they opened fire on this eight-year kid. When I went to the mortuary, I saw this kid at the mortuary riddled with bullets beyond recognition. I was fascinated in working on this series where, you know, again, like I'm not a Musk fan, so I hadn't really paid much attention to Musk, but I was fascinated by how deeply he feels, seems appears to feel about Hitchhiker's Guide and how often he uses it as a reference mm -hmm, point, mm -hmm. right? Like he wants to name the first spaceship to Mars after the spaceship in the story. And um, But then I discovered that Douglas Adams was a, 
a, a pretty vocal opponent of apartheid. And the typewriter on which he typed the scripts for the Hitchhiker's Guide radio series has a sticker on it that says End Apartheid. So, you know, I wasn't imagining it when I listened to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and heard it as an indictment of systems of profound economic inequality, and it's specifically mm-hmm. an indictment of apartheid. So then I, once I sort of started thinking about that and taking that seriously, I had to kind of ask myself, well, how how could you miss that? That is to say, like, mm-hmm. how could you base a vision of the future on a satire of that vision of the future? Like, <laughs> should I mean, like, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. if Douglas Adams is saying we shouldn't we shouldn't send wealthy colonists to other planets to build luxury colonies because that is wrong and writing a satire that displays the many ways in which that is wrong. And then that's your guide for living. But yet you use that as a guide for living to justify in your own mind the doing of the very thing that the story is opposed to. And I think there's some just kind of like tone deafness, this kind of literalness around some of what, and it's really, it's not just Musk, it's Bezos and his science fiction mm-hmm. reference points. Or think about Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he says the metaverse is kind of inspired by Neil Stevenson. Well, Neil Stevenson's metaverse is a dystopia. You know, the sort of, who are the, why do these guys keep sort of reading science fiction, which often is a kind of searing social criticism? Why are they reading it as a user's manual? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as a, as a design guide. And I, I think there is a just kind of... um a failure to understand the nature of the critique and a, you know, just a enthrallment with the gadgetry of it all. Like, oh, well, oh, we could build that ship. Like, actually, if you build the ship, it would work this way. Mm-hmm, um, and there's mm-hmm. an incredible amount of engineering ingenuity behind that vision. But I do think that what gets imported into it, partly because the vision of the future is imported from science fiction, that is an indictment of inequality. Mm-hmm. The vision of inequality gets imported into it as well, right? Like, think about the Silicon Valley guys who are big fans of universal basic income. Why are they big fans of universal basic income? I mean, you would love to hear your theory of this, but I hear yeah, that. Sure. It's like, you know, they imagine that in the future there will be no jobs for people that are not able mm-hmm. to code because all those jobs will become automated. And so in order to prevent a sort of socialist revolution, they need to give cash handouts to people who have lost their jobs to robots and other forms of automation. And they're okay with that. Like, that's how I sort of see that vision. And Yeah, it's like a failure of political imagination because it's a kind of enthrallment to, again, a science fiction vision that is not a manual for living, but is an indictment of economic systems that were built like more than a century ago. Yeah, if certainly if early space tourism is an indication of where things are headed uh, <laughs> with uh, price tags of uh, $55 billion for a seat on the next SpaceX flight, I think it is or something, um, we're going to have a real a real problem. My guess is that Elon would say that the vision here is similar to that of Tesla. Start with the high-end sports car that captures attention, fun product development, gradually lower the price, advance uh, a solution for the world. Oh, yeah, sure. He could say that. But we accept that the automotive industry is private enterprise. But we have not accepted that until very recently that that's the case with space exploration, right? In the 1960s, the vision was it was kind of a great society vision, right? This is an important I mean, oh, there's also a Cold War vision. But, you know, there were federal government dollars being put as in a priority 
fashion towards space exploration, toward the mission to the moon. And you mm-hmm. could disagree with that or agree with it, but at least mm-hmm. it was subjected to the ordinary process of political wisdom. So, and in fact, people did disagree. It was a big kind of argument of a lot of civil rights activists. We shouldn't be going to the moon. That you know, that's the whole sort of whitey on the moon critique is so the Gil Scott Heron critique, or the civil rights activists who marched, you know, at the Kennedy Space Center the day before the uh, Apollo mission was launched in 1969. People would say, "Yeah, okay, so if this is something the federal government wants to do, we, as people who pay taxes, object to it." There's not that possibility for objection when you have the world's likely first trillionaire funding this, and and, and now saying. He doesn't need to pay taxes because he's bringing the light of human consciousness to the stars, right? It's just a complete subversion of our notion of space exploration as a public good, right? Like There was not a vote held when people decided that this would be subjected to the laws of, of the market. But now that's effectively what has happened. I love the uh, your reference to the Gil Scott Heron, uh, Whitey on the Moon song. Was all that money I made last year for Whitey on the Moon how come I ain't got no money here? Hmm, Whitey's on the moon. You know, I just about had my fill of Whitey on the moon. I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special, to Whitey on the moon. So continuing the story of, of, of the different forces that affected the young Elon, he leaves South Africa when he's 17. He wants to go to the U.S., but it's easier to get a Canadian passport because that's where his mother's family is from, I think. So he flies from South Africa to Montreal, hitchhikes to Saskatchewan, which is where his maternal grandfather, J.N. Haldeman, was from. This guy is an extraordinary piece of the story of the forces that shaped young Elon Musk. He was a leader in the technocracy movement. This, this is an unbelievable piece of the story I'd never heard before. Could you share this story? Yeah. Haldeman is completely fascinating. And you can also find photographs of him online and he looks exactly like Elon Musk. And there's just such a really tremendously interesting family likeness there. He was an adventurer. Um, He worked in the rodeo for a while. He was cowboy. (laughs) He was a sort of self-taught aviator and flew planes all around and really wanted to explore. But in the 1930s, he he had lost his family farm during the Great Depression. And like a lot of Canadians and pe- Americans in especially the Pacific Northwest and California, he was attracted to this new movement that was an alternative to democracy, an alternative to socialism, an alternative to fascism. Uh, and it was called the technocracy movement. And we talk now, we use the word technocrat to sort of, mm-hmm, it's a, it's something mm-hmm. like a, a bit of a slur, like a sort of sure. like bureaucrat, right? Which starts out purely descriptively. But for technocrats, they called themselves technocrats because they believed that scientists and engineers should rule and that politicians should not. And um, that all social and economic problems could be solved through technological advancement. And therefore, it would just be better to just bypass the whole system where there were things like banks um, and governments. And you just go ahead, go straight to the people that can make the good decisions, the scientists and um, engineers. And Haldeman was not just a member of the technocracy movement. He was basically the leader of the Canadian version of the movement. Canada went on to outlaw technocracy in the 1940s. Mm. um, And uh, Musk's grandfather went to prison. Um, for being a technocrat. He was quite dedicated to this proposition. He was also an ardent anti-communist by that point. And by then, technocracy had been associated to some degree with the right. It's a very anti-government position, among among other things, if you, if you think about it. And it also had some 
very creepy dimensions. <laughs> I mean, it's both kooky and creepy. Like these, a lot of these, they were they would have these marches where all the technocrats would wear matching gray suits and they would drive gray cars in these convoys. Um, it just it seems very cartoonish, but I think many people found it quite threatening. But it has a lot of um, there's a, there are some again here too. There are some overlaps with fashionable ideas in Silicon Valley, right? The whole cryptocurrency movement is in part about um, releasing the, the world of finance and, mm-hmm. and currency from the authority of the nation state. That was a huge priority of technocrats who also wanted to get rid of money as currency. They thought that the unit of currency should be a unit of energy known as the ERG. Yes. So, so they were anti-capitalist in that way, but then in this sort of way like ultra-capitalist. It's just a really, I, I have no idea how much, you know, Elon Musk knew about his grandfather, knew, uh, you know, I, I have a fantasy of him, mm-hmm. young 17-year-old kid, impressionable person trying to figure out his way in the world, coming across these technocracy pamphlets in some family attic in Saskatchewan, but I have no evidence whatsoever for that. Right, 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 right. But you suggest that one way or another, perhaps this was transmitted, right? As part of at least the family culture. There's a libertarian strain here and, yeah. and a reverence for engineering. Yes. Yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Okay, so Musk eventually leaves Canada, moves to the U.S. for college, graduates in 95, enrolls in a PhD program at Stanford, but he doesn't last long. Uh, walk us through what Musk gets up to from the time he he leaves Stanford uh, to 2002 when he becomes a member of the so-called PayPal mafia. Yeah, so he had he had always wanted to go to the United States. I think it's, you know, as a place sort of where innovation was 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 really happening, um, where this is just a just a kind of go go economic engine. Certainly by the 1990s. So he goes to Penn, and then he, I think he's maybe two or three days in a PhD program at, at Stanford and decides, you know, more is going on um, in the world of entrepreneurship. And so is swept away, you know, right at the moment, 1995 is just when the internet is opening to commercial 
traffic. It's the very beginning of the dot-com boom. There are huge fortunes to be made. People with big ideas, you know, just have an open field. I mean, it must have been incredibly exciting for someone like Musk at that point. So he he becomes a serial entrepreneur, right? He starts a company, he sells it, he uses that money to start another company, he sells it, uses that money to start another company. And he, you know, he's he's magnificent at this, right? And, and still is. So he, I think his first company um, is called Zip2. Then he sells that company and starts X.com, which is sort of um, meant to replace banking. It's it's a kind of technocracy project. It's a sort of online banking project. Mm-hmm. Then that sort of merges with and becomes part of PayPal. The company comes to be called PayPal instead, which had been the company on Peter Thiel's end. Uh, X.com is absorbed into it. Musk becomes a CEO. Musk is no longer the CEO. Then PayPal is sold and, and this group of people, Musk and Thiel among them, become the PayPal mafia. They have a huge amount of uh, liquidity to invest in other startups and in that sense can kind of pick projects and anoint them with their funds. And Musk decides to use a huge amount of his money to start SpaceX um, and uh, offers up this extraordinary vision that he's going to colonize Mars and people laugh at him. And I mean, this is, you know, one place where anybody who's a critic of Musk has to acknowledge mm-hmm. the extraordinary yep. distance that SpaceX uh, has come in the last two decades since its founding. I mean, people just didn't think this was going to happen. That you know that the, the kinds of things he was talking about could even technically happen, or could happen in anything like that window of time. And then, and then that he joins. He jo- he's an early investor in Tesla, and uh, joins Tesla, uh, and then becomes the head of Tesla. And, and by then, is sort of uh, occupying, you know, the, the the directorship of two different companies. And and probably three out of four people on the street would assume that Elon founded Tesla, but that was not the case. And, and this is a, a reminder of the power of storytelling, right? That that story has been somewhat rewritten. Yeah. And it was a subject of litigation um, because the guys who did found Tesla <laughs> were not too happy about the decision to sort of pretend that Musk had founded Tesla. I mean, he was important to its founding for sure. Uh, and they figured out some kind of a settlement in court, but it certainly became... Uh, an active decision on the part of Tesla that Musk would be its figurehead. Um, by 2008, when the first of the Iron Man movies comes out, you know, it's this reboot of this 1960s Marvel character where Musk is, ju- he sort of merges with a Hollywood version of himself, right? And then is, I think, shuttling really between LA and, and San Francisco. Not a move that a lot of Silicon Valley people are making or are capable of making, but he he becomes the media darling, the face of a certain sort of entrepreneurial success, uh, really attractive at a moment of um, the United States as the reigning global superpower. We're very well into the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which of course is a storyline that Iron Man starts with, but mm-hmm. we're not into the world of critiquing that. And somehow sort of being Tony Stark, being Iron Man, is something that Tesla thinks is good for Tesla. And so Musk becomes Tesla. They sort of merge their identities. You know what? I think we actually have a have a clip from, from that. Before Iron Man, Musk in interviews was modest. The things that worry me are, are, are we going to make a mistake? Our own foolishness, our own errors can, can hurt us. There's a reason why there's an idiomatic expression about rocket science being hard. Uh, it, it, it really is really hard. 
If you're not a musketeer, if you've always scratched your head at what people could possibly find appealing about Elon Musk, listen to some of these early interviews. He's a smart, fascinating person with interesting, if grandiose, ideas. Well, I think what I'd like to do is help solve some important problems. So I think in a small way, I helped build the internet. uh, And then with respect to the the global warming problem, the, the transition from from uh, away from oil and other hydrocarbons to, to something which is clean and sustainable. I uh, hope to have an impact there. And then uh, with respect to space, I hope to have an impact in uh, helping make humanity a multi-planet species. But after Iron Man, Elon Musk seemed to become more like Tony Stark, flashier, brasher. It seems sometimes as if Musk was resisting this role, for instance, in an appearance on The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. People have called you the real Tony Stark. You're trying to do good things and you're a billionaire. I mean, yeah. that seems a little bit like either superhero or supervillain. You have to choose one. I'm trying to do useful things. <laughs> I mean, After a while, though, he settled into the role. Okay, I am Iron Man. Uh, but, but eventually you can transform Mars into an Earth-like planet. How would you do that? Uh, you'd, you'd warm it up. Drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles. <laughs> Super villain. <laughs> Still, I think there's another way to look at this transformation. Maybe Elon Musk becoming Tony Stark had been Tesla's plan all along. So here's a guy who developed a set of ambitions in his childhood based on comic books about space exploration, <laughs> who goes on to influence the development of a Marvel comic character, Tony Stark, who then goes on to be influenced by that fictional character. Right? <laughs> Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a snake eating its tail. I mean, I have to think that that some of Musk's increasing confidence might have been correlated with the stock price. <laughs> that, that part, yeah. That part of it, as as you point out, it's easy to forget that he almost went bankrupt and barely kind of clawed his way through that very challenging time. And then obviously, you know, today he's the wealthiest man in the world. So I, I imagine that that has something to do with it. But but certainly we're all powerfully influenced by stories. And it feels like both the world needed a Tony Stark and maybe Musk was ready to be that person. I think it was a role he was very much ready to play. He knew every element of the character because it is a role right out of a comic book. The pieces of the story, the facts of the matter that uh, counter the storyline, you know, that Tesla was part of a government bailout, (laughs) you know, that there were loans that the government offered to Tesla that Tesla took. These are inconvenient facts for that storyline. And so they're very much um, contained. Now, to say, you know, Tesla paid back those government loans earlier, Mm -hmm. even than they were due. I'm going to say, but, you know, the the idea that... um, that Musk himself heroically clawed himself out of near bankruptcy. You can picture that. You can, and you close your eyes and you can picture the comic book panel in which you see him doing that. <laughs> you can't really picture the comic book panel in which Tesla receives a government loan. <laughs> right. Right. So, right, right, right. Um, you know, the story reinforces itself. And it, and, it, and it was very cannily cultivated by some very canny ad people at Tesla. You know, Tesla didn't run ads, they just, put yeah. Musk out there to tweet and they could watch the stock price respond to his every tweet. So you know, if you were a business school professor and wanted to write up a case study about how 
this sort of extreme capitalism works, you would have to use Tesla as your case study because it really is the way in which, you know, venture capitalism is all about telling a story, right? And sometimes the story is a lie, like that's the Elizabeth Holmes version of this. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But never is the story wholly true, right? <laughs> it's, a st it's a story and you have to keep, you have to keep inflating the story to get more people to buy the stock in the hope that eventually it'll pay off for people. But meanwhile, you really, you have to keep that, that story, at least on a really pretty uh, busy simmer. Well, Steve Jobs may have been the first to uh, to fully execute on the storytelling, right? I mean, they, Apple has done mm -hmm. a phenomenal job of of leveraging their product announcements, you know, for decades. But certainly, Tesla and Musk have have done an exceptional job. And at some point, probably, it's difficult for Elon himself to tell the difference between the joy of his of his, of his Twitter execution and a marketing strategy, <laughs> right? If it's hard, yeah, yeah, hard yeah. to know yeah, what yeah. his internal experience is. But um, you make the case that Musk and, and other participants in Muskism suffer from almost a delusional grandiosity, which, which and, and certainly that would appear to be the case. It seems to me that on the one hand, we kind of want people to try to save the world, right? I mean, I mean, the mission that Tesla has to, I think it's advance the advent of sustainable transport. You know, that's that's clearly a good thing. Like we, we like, well, like we, we we want that to be his mission. On the other hand, as you point out, we don't want a small number of people making decisions about our future, uh, particularly when they think the best use of their 270 billion in assets is to extend the light of consciousness to the stars, <laughs> right? I mean, wh where do you fall on this? Don't you think there's some place for delusional grandiosity and a messianic uh, sense of mission can sometimes be a positive thing. It could also be dangerous. I would maybe want to be convinced about the positive cases. I, I think when you think historically about the era in which, you know, Bezos and Musk and, and others came to wield the kind of economic power that they wield. It was an era in which culturally in the United States, people were fascinated with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? There's this sort of just, especially kind of post Reagan. Remember in 1990, Reagan publishes his biography in American Life and somehow even politics is about Hollywood celebrity and glamour. Lifestyles of the rich and famous is on television. Welcome to television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another dazzling lifestyles of the rich and famous. The pay of CEOs is skyrocketing. Wages for ordinary workers, especially people with just high school degrees, are stagnant and falling. And so the rising income inequality, you know, really, it's been rising in the United States since, since about 1970, but it really starts to soar um, in the 1990s. And part of that culture of celebrity and glamour and, and lifestyles of the rich and famous is about erasing the labor of ordinary people. Um, and erasing the significance of government intervention and government regulation, right? In these kind of post-Reagan years. So behind the, you know, the snazzy Bezos founding Blue Origins, you know, not long after Musk founds mm -hmm. SpaceX is, you know, a lot of suffering, a lot of local businesses closing, a lot of um, factories closing, you know, factories have been closing since the 1970s, but, you know, there's just a, just a lot of economic despair that is lying in the wake of these changes. And, you know, we're sort of constantly asked to look away from that despair and that economic suffering and that, that hardship and expect salvation from these messianic figures. And, you know, I, I, I kind of hate the alarmism of like language, like calling this a neo-feudalism, but 
you know, it, it was centuries of political struggle that dethroned the nobility <laughs> and said, yep, yep. you know, ordinary people should have a voice in how the, in the direction of the economy and of in, in of our social arrangements. And and that's what democracy is for. And it, it's always intention um, with a kind of unbridled capitalism. But that has been, for most of American history, frankly, a productive tension that has led to rising standards of living um, and, a, and a lot of ingenuity and innovation in really exciting ways. But it's not working anymore. And, you know, I, I, I'm not laying that at the, at the foot of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They're the only somehow people who are responsible for this. But they are an example of the ways in which um, our system of values has been really quite profoundly distorted. Now, it, it, in the sense that it wasn't a, a decision, right? There wasn't a decision where people said, you know what, it would be really great if the following things could happen. Um, we would like to anoint Mark Zuckerberg and, um, you know, these other people being in charge with, you know, all political communication or space exploration or all retail ventures. It's not a, it's not a decision. It's a problem. And as, as you've said, historically, we've had reasonable debate about whether the allocation of resources to send a man to the moon was sensible. Right. And we were, and we all participated in that. Right. And, and now we're living in this world where quite unbelievably the wealthiest man on the planet and the second wealthiest man on the planet, right? <laughs> Bezos and Musk both have these childhood fantasies of, you know, going to space that they are setting out to realize with with between the two of them some $400 billion in assets, right? So it's this, it's a privatization of space. It's the sort of thing that had you had you told someone about it 30 years ago, they wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. And that they they cite as their motivation, realizing the visions of the science fiction of their boyhood, when in fact, you know, the science fiction of the last half century since, you know, the age of Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, the science fiction of the last half century has been exposing, you know, the 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 horror that that vision represented, right? So that was a vision, you know, of of a kind of mid-century white male patriarchal fantasy about rule and especially about colonialism and has been undone by, you know, Afrofuturism. Think of like Octavia Butler. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest has won science fiction's two highest honors, the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award. Octavia Butler is one of the few African-American women in the genre. Her new novel, Parable of the Sower, is set in Southern California in the year 2025. The people lucky enough to still have houses have to build walls to protect themselves against crazy and desperate street people. It's, it's grim. Um, all the things that I can see going wrong now, well, not all of them, but a good many of them have continued to go wrong. In 2025, for instance, the things that work best are the tax system. A lot of people don't have jobs and are living on the street, even though they work very hard. They're not able to earn enough to um, both live in a house and eat food. It's it's just a society that's on the base, uh, uh, just just about ready to collapse. Or you know, feminist science fiction. You think about Margaret yep. Atwood, or you know, a Ted Chiang, or you know, you could name any number of really powerful writers who identify as science fiction writers who are, who are writing in a science fiction tradition who are indicting that very Asimovian, Heinleinian vision that Bezos and Zuckerberg and, and Musk 
say is their model for living, right? Like, there's a there's a reason that all these writers have criticized, you know, there's a reason for the rise of a dystopian science fiction, because the world building that these particular men are doing is derived from a vision of world building that has caused extraordinary suffering to people who are not like them. So I just don't see like where they get a pass to say, oh, this is this is just charming. I'm I'm just an innocent boy like waif who has this attachment to comic books of my childhood. And isn't that cute? Like, no, it's it's not actually cute. It, you know, and in fact, writers from, you know, more than a century ago, when we think about H.G. Wells, he was writing to indict colonialism, right? Like mm-hmm. when he wrote War of the Worlds, when the Martians come and invade Earth to take over the Earth because they want another planet, it's a parable about the British Empire. <laughs> it's not a manifesto to go take over Mars. Yeah, yeah. And from a pragmatic perspective, just the, the idea that going to Mars is a solution is, I mean, you know, it, it strikes me that even if one were to detonate every nuclear warhead on the planet and imagine decades of the worst conceivable global warming, this planet is still dramatically better for Homo sapiens than any other planet <laughs> that's, you know, out there. And you actually have, you have a great exchange with Elizabeth Colbert, author of The Sixth Extinction, about this. A key story for Musk as a brand is that he's saving the planet and saving humans from extinction. But is he? Elon Musk is a really, you know, difficult one to parse. He's been very open in saying that colonizing space is in a sort of a survival strategy, which I think is a thought that has a weird amount of currency out there in the world. And when you think about it, you know, in my view, just just makes no sense whatsoever. Elizabeth Colbert is a New Yorker staff writer who won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Sixth Extinction. There are a lot of these tech billionaires who are interested in space, obviously, as you know, and who obviously also see it as a big business. Um, and it's hard to pull that apart, too, how much of this, you know, sort of space exploration hype, I'm going to call it, is on behalf of very, potentially very profitable businesses and how much of it is really this kind of sci-fi, you know, escape from Earth fantasy. I I really don't know. So then why do you call it hype? Well, I mean, Elon Musk is constantly telling us, you know, when we're going to colonize Mars. But if you (laughs) ask any person seriously involved in space exploration, are we colonizing Mars the way... Elon Musk is constantly proclaiming that we will, and within a very short time frame, they will say, absolutely not. There's absolutely no way that's happening. Mm-hmm. I think most of us would agree there's a place for space exploration, and there's a lot of utility right now to satellites and GPS systems, and there's no, there's no kind of going back uh, in terms of the, you know, our, our movements into space, but it's it, it's really it's really about the scale of capital allocation and focus, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the scientific justification for it uh, is incontrovertible. I mean, much that we know, for instance, about climate change on Earth is derived in some remove from environmental science that was done starting in the 1950s, thinking about other planets, thinking about the consequences of nuclear fallout in the atomic era. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that we should be 
undertaking scientific research about the movement of planets and stars and uh, and the nature of solar systems other than our own. And, and even, you know, conducting manned space missions, I think there's a place for that. I, I think that itself, though, is subject to public debate. I just I just don't think that the richest people on the planet get to decide the, the, the fate of humanity. Mm-hmm. But isn't that, in the end, uh, a question of of capital allocation or of of the concentration of wealth problem and taxation and 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 how we solve for that, right? Because it's not like we want there to be ambitious people who build better space travel and better electric cars, clearly. But in the end, I think it seems to me that the the core problem is is perhaps that nobody should have two hundred and seventy billion dollars and and allocate it as they wish. I mean, do, do you think that's the the root of the problem? Um, yes, I don't think that. People should have that kind of money. Uh, I think that's a function of, you know, decades of decay in the idea of uh, public interest. And I we see the consequences of that decay all around us, not just in our economic arrangements. Obviously, we see that in the, in the, in the nature of our political arrangements. But I also, you know, I think it's a there's a bigger question to hand of what's worth knowing is making money off of minerals that can be found through space exploration the main thing that we can know about space? I mean, if you think about how passionately human beings over history have looked to philosophers, theologians, ordinary clergy, shamans for understanding our place in the universe and how rich and extraordinary and complicated and messy and beautiful and ugly that entire history of contemplation of the nature of uh, the place of our planet or the place of our species in the world and in the universe uh, you measure all that up and against that you have the way we live now where the only thing to really know about it is what Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos think. That's an incredible impoverishment of the possibility of humanity, right? That that we don't care about poetry and literature and art and philosophy and religion and all the many ways we might contemplate what the meaning is to be made of our place in the world. We The only meaning that we make is how much money trillionaires can contemplate making off of it. I, I mean, I think that's such a huge part of the problem and so maybe this does seem like I've got my feathers ruffled about it somehow but it it troubles me that then for these people whose interest is and and I and I I and completely get what Elizabeth's saying in that interview clip where she's like you can't really know like does does he is it does is you know is he like a seven-year-old who really wants to send a rocket to Mars or is he a very cunning sort of Henry Ford style businessman who wants to make the most possible money off exploiting the resources on Mars and that requires getting there first? It's clearly some piece of both. But the piece of the salesmanship that I just don't buy is bringing the light of human consciousness to the stars. Because yes. that is the piece that just is like scribbled out of a boyhood notebook from science fiction. And there's just it has no... It just, there's no note of sincerity to that when I hear that. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. 
If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the Next Big Idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a Book Bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the next big idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the next big idea app right now. Playing devil's advocate for a minute or, or, or musk advocate for a minute, it strikes me that there's no doubt that technological acceleration is increasing, right? And and there's an argument we had Azim Azar on the show recently talking about the exponential age and this, um, you know, that the pace of technological change is increasing at a rate that most people can't fathom. Um, and we've seen this to a degree in the last few decades, but there are many who believe that in the next several decades, it will accelerate much, much faster. And so I think what Musk might say is, on the one hand, we really need to use those technologies as solutions to problems like global warming. On the other hand, it's it's rational to be afraid of the existential threat. So, I mean, we, we can read the existential threats as sort of a, you know, uh, as a 1950s science fiction sort of fantasy, but... I think there's also a rational argument to be made that some of these potential existential threats from, you know, biohacking in the next 30 or 40 years or artificial intelligence or what have you might be real. And so, as William S. Burroughs puts it, sometimes the paranoid just have all the facts, right? And so, I, I think what Musk would say probably if he were in this conversation is, I'm really genuinely trying to, you know, trying to help us use the acceleration of technology in ways that will help the species and prepare for bad outcomes, which might actually be worse than we think. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, yeah, I would concede some portion of that, but I think I wouldn't concede a whole lot of it in that the sort of let's engineer our way out of problems that we engineered our way into is a very handy argument to make. But when you think about that historically, like, so I think you would say, I wrote a history of the United States a few years ago. And when I got to 1945, having talked a lot about technological change and, you know, for the centuries that preceded that moment, I talked about Hiroshima and Nagasaki as the moment when um, the speed of technological change outpaced our capacity for moral reckoning, right? Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that might be just with regard to the acceleration, the exponential acceleration that you're talking about, which I, I, I think is spot on. Um, so what was the consequence historically then of our inability to, to take the time to reckon with um, atomic weaponry before using it, before fully developing mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. um, well, it took 40, 50 years of activism. It took the nuclear freeze movement it took the um, collapse of the Soviet economy and um, Gorbachev's need to negotiate. It took a, a, a decades of scientific research on 
the consequences of radiation poisoning for Japanese who suffered um, during those attacks. It took research on the nature of fallout. It took Carl Sagan's work on nuclear winter. It took decades and decades and decades to, to come to the realization, both scientific and moral, that launching nuclear attacks is a terrible idea and shouldn't be done, right? Even though a lot of people said that in 1945, it took decades of research and work and politicking and political struggle and dissent and scientific dissent and scientific peer review and argumentation to get to a point of significant disarmament, right? I mean, there are arms limitation talks in the 1960s. So it, it, just, it took a really long time. So the idea here that our model is, well, there are threats coming, so we should come up with technological fixes to those threats instead of not develop the threats. <laughs> it's just a weird idea, right? Like it's going to take a hundred years to fight, you know, the biohacking technology that it, it's not going to it's not going to happen immediately. That that there will be some technological solution to the technological problem. It doesn't work that way. There's a certain amount of political will. There's there's the uh, consolidation of sentiment within a government that action would be meaningful. I mean, think about how easy it would have been to dismantle social media. In 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, right? There were plenty of people who were saying at the time, you know, in the first years of social media, this is great. It's going to solve all the problems of the world's people. Everyone's, you know, power to the people is going to be digital democracy. But there were a lot of people saying this is a quite bad idea. And you can see the coarsening Mm -hmm. of discourse and you can see the asymmetry um, in which lies are going to be more successful in this this environment than than true statements. And it just wasn't done. So uh, do we need a technological do we need a big technological fix for Facebook? No, like any number of people working at Facebook today could technologically solve the nature of the problem, right? There were any number of solutions that were put to Zuckerberg, you know, maybe instead of the news feed, just making news free for everybody, we should require people to subscribe to things that they tend to read a lot. That might save local journalism. What do you think, Mark? Nah, you know, that would decrease our user numbers or would decrease the amount of time people use. We'd lose some data on people. We, you know, so... It's not actually a question of technology. It's a question of morality and politics. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Musk has been involved in advocating for the regulation of artificial intelligence in order to try to get ahead of you know, future negative consequences. So I, I would think that he would concur with, with, with much of that. Where, where, where I think he really potentially flips from, uh, from hero to villain is on this subject of of wealth concentration. You know mm-hmm. that he seems to be against raising income and capital gains taxes, against a wealth tax, but in favor of raising estate taxes. Um, and he has this quote, which has characteristic Musk swagger. Um, it does not make sense to take the job of capital allocation away from people who've demonstrated great skill in capital allocation and give it to an entity that has demonstrated very poor skill in capital allocation, which is the government. But then he says that uh, the probability of progeny being equally excellent at capital allocation is not high. <laughs> Classic Musk, right? Um, so he, he, he does seem to have endless um, confidence in, in uh, his own uh, superiority at, at the allocation of, of, of capital, which 
it strikes me that is sort of the crux of of the issue here, you know, which is that it's just an increasingly enormous portion of the assets available to the world that are in the hands of a handful of boys with science fiction fantasies in their heads. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to ask for future historians to try to figure out exactly how that came to be. <laughs> exactly. Well, you've done a great job of investigating that. I want to close by asking whether you think that figures like Elon and maybe Muskism itself is falling out of fashion. Um, you know, I, I think of Apple. We have mild-mannered Tim Cook, who may not be the genius artist that Steve Jobs was, but it turns out he's actually probably a better steward of the company. Or even if you look at Amazon, Bezos is out, and there's a new guy, Andy Jassy, in, in his seat, who everyone says is really, really nice. Right, and we watched the we watched the implosion of Elizabeth Holmes, who you reference, and Adam Newman and Travis Kalanick, um, who are CEOs who embodied the kind of grandiosity and messianic qualities of of Muskism. Um, do you think that the, this archetype of the of the successful Silicon Valley CEO is changing, and we're moving towards a less ego driven um, mm. direction? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I, I'm terrible at prophecy. I, I do sense the mood change that you're talking about. I think there's something just unsavory at a moment of such global suffering. I think people are pretty aware that people like Musk and Bezos made an extraordinary amount of money, have made an extraordinary money during the pandemic mm -hmm. at a time when people are being evicted from their houses and yeah, losing their jobs yeah. and uh, you know unable to send their kids to school. So I think there's a kind of... Um, you know, if you think about films from the 1930s, the millionaires are always villains in those films because what happens in the 1930s is everyone knows they can fall off a financial cliff. Even if you are you still have a job and you still have some money and you still have a house and you can still feed your children in the 1930s during the Great Depression, you know how precarious that is. And so there's a sense of sort of solidarity around compassion for other people's suffering, mm -hmm. even if you're doing okay. Yeah. But what everybody kind of agrees on is that people... <laughs> You know, uh, even just think about It's a Wonderful Life. Think mm -hmm. about, you know, Mr. Potter. That, um, you know, you don't want to be Mr. Potter at that moment in time. Like, the question is, you know, are, are we kind of now in that different sort of Frank Capra moment with uh, where where the clarity around which people would see these figures as villains is 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 a product of the suffering of the pandemic. I I, I think there there may very well, very well be something of a mood change. I, I don't know that I would think that that would lead to necessarily a structural change. I think that some of the flamboyance, the laddishness, the oh isn't that an adorable boyishness, um, the you know the kind of man boy piece of it. I, I think that will become unsavory and unpalatable, and it'll it'll become more hidden. Mm -hmm. But I think the the raw exercise of economic power uh, will will continue. Just maybe not necessarily on the glittery TED like stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Jill, thank you for taking time out of your teaching and New Yorker writing and dinner party preparations to be with us today. <laughs> uh, I uh, I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Jill Lepore's new podcast is The Evening Rocket. You can find it wherever you listen. There's also a link in our episode notes. We mentioned Jeff Bezos a few times today. If you want to learn a little more about the fantasies that drive him, download the Next Big Idea app and check out the book bite journalist Brad Stone made for his bestseller, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. 
This is a 12-minute audio summary of the book, written and read by Brad himself. It's a fantastic listen. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like the show, please rate and review us. It really helps us out. We also just launched a newsletter. It's full of behind-the-scenes goodies. Sign up today by connecting with me on LinkedIn. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor and Nicole Morano and the team at Pushkin who helped make this episode happen. Our show today was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn is the fuel in our Mars-bound rocket ship. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Mm-hmm.